Well, what a great joy to be with you this morning at Pitts Baptist Church. And uh, Scott, I bring you greetings from Milton Hollyfield, our executive director treasurer for the state of North Carolina, and also from Chuck Register, who is my boss, my immediate boss, and the executive leader of uh, Great Commission Partnerships and also church planning across the state. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're going to look at a story that should be familiar to most of us, but one that maybe we've overlooked the particular part that I'm going to talk about today. But let me tell you, it's a great thrill to be with you at Pitts. I've uh, enjoyed my relationship with your pastor through the years. We've known each other for a long time, and then he came through Tar Heel Leadership years ago when I was assisting Dr. Mark Quartz in doing that, and Scott and I have maintained a good relationship through the years, and so it's a joy to be here, and my, what a blessing he has been to this church as I have watched your progress under his ministry as pastor, and uh, he's an excellent leader, as you know. I want to look at part of Acts chapter 9. This is the passage where we see the conversion of the apostle Paul, who was known as Saul at that time. But I want to look not at Saul, but I want to look more specifically at the story of a layman that is fit into this passage. And so we're going to start reading with verse 10 this morning, and listen to what it says. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he rose, and he was baptized And taking food, he was strengthened. You know, this morning as we look at missions, one of the things that I want to ask you a question about and hopefully help you to answer throughout this day is considering that God has given the great commission to the church. And the church is made up of individual believers. What difference can one individual believer make in the kingdom of God. Have you stopped to consider that recently? One of the reasons I love this passage about Ananias is here is one individual believer that God called at a particular time and placed his hand on him and said, I've got a purpose for you. And we see that very clearly. I want you to stop and think about this man, Ananias, for just a moment. Really, the only thing we know about him is what we read in this passage. We don't know anything else about him. We don't hear, for instance, that he's a deacon. Certainly not that he is a pastor. But there are some things that we gain from this passage that we do know about him. Look at verse 10. We know that God chose him as a particular servant. 
It says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. And immediately, he answered, yes, Lord. One of the things that we know about Ananias is that he was seeking God. He was a follower. It said he was a disciple of Jesus. And evidently, he was listening for what Jesus wanted to say to him. Because it says, in a vision... God called out to him, and his immediate response was, yes, Lord. Now, I gained a couple of things from that. Number one, I gained from that, that Ananias slowed down long enough to spend time with God. Did you notice the little drama that your youth did this morning? I love that. Here was a guy in obvious need of help, and everybody except one person is walking right by him, ignoring him. You know, one of the problems that we have as a church is that we live in a busy world. And we get so involved in such a complex, busy world that it's very difficult for us to slow down and listen for God. Ananias was doing exactly what he needed to do. He had slowed down and he was listening for God. But notice, secondly, when God called him, he recognized God's voice. Isn't that interesting? A number of years ago, I was down in the eastern part of the state preaching at Cape Carteret Baptist Church, and I was headed back on Sunday morning. It was March of 2003, to be exact. And I called my wife to tell her I was headed home, and it's a long drive, about four hours plus, and told her I was headed home, and she said, uh, by the way, when you get home, get a copy of today's sermon and listen to the conversation that Al, our pastor at that time, had with John Brady. She said, God needs you to listen to that. And I said, okay. I ought to know to obey the voice of my wife by now, but, you know, we'll celebrate 40 years this coming fall. And so I got home, and I didn't think any more about it. And I got home Monday night. She said, you listen to that sermon? Nope. Got home Tuesday night. you listen to that sermon? Nope. Got home Wednesday night. Did you listen to that sermon? No, I promise. I'll get a copy tomorrow and listen to it. She said, you better. Thursday, my phone rang, and it was my pastor. He said, come to the office. We need to talk. And I said, okay. And I walked in the office. He said, had a conversation with Brady, and John at that time was the leader of North Africa and Middle East. And he said, John wants Calvary to lead the effort to reach Iraq and wants us to fund, wants us to run the effort for volunteers. He said, you're the perfect guy for that. And so I told him you'd do it. <laughs> I said, you know, I really appreciate that, Al. I said, because if you hadn't told him I would do it, I'd be in your office asking you why you didn't choose me. He said, I knew that. I have a great love for the Arab world, folks, and the Islamic world in particular. And so he said... Told him you'd do it. And I was not missions pastor at that time. I was still working with Dr. Quartz doing Tar Heel leadership primarily, but always have been very involved in missions. And so I was walking down the hall, and Francis Smith, who was in our missions pastor, motioned me in. He said, come in the office. I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. He said, IMB wants us to lead the effort to get volunteers in and out of Iraq. Once the war gets started, he said, I think you'd be the perfect guy to do it. And I'm thinking, that's strange. Why did both of them need to talk to me about it? Kind of find out later they hadn't talked to each other about it. And then I got to thinking, you know, maybe I ought to talk to my wife about this. 
And so I called her. I said, what you doing for lunch? She said, evidently eating with you. I said, that's right. And so I took her out to one of our favorite restaurants, and I said, I got a new assignment today. She said, I know. You're leaving for Baghdad. When do you leave? <laughs> and I said, how do you know? And she said, I've been telling you since Sunday you needed to listen to the conversation between Al and John. Steve, as soon as that conversation started and I heard what it was about, God said, Becky, Steve is going to be right in the middle of this, so just go ahead and accept it. Now, how many of you wives would feel that way about your husband going to Baghdad in the middle of the war? I've been 32 times, by the way. You see, my wife knows how to listen to the voice of God much better than I do many times. But we have to slow down to hear God before we can ever respond to a call, don't we? Are you taking the time to hear God? If God tapped you on the shoulder this morning and called you by name, would you know that it was God's voice that you're hearing? That's the question I want to know. Are you spending enough time with God? Do you have the type of relationship with God that if he taps you on the shoulder and calls you by name that you know who it is that is calling out to you? That's the kind of Christian I want to be. That's the kind of disciple that I want to be. But we see not only did God choose a servant, he also gave a command to the servant. Look at verse 11. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him in order to restore his sight. Wow. Wouldn't it be nice, Scott, if God's directions were that specific all the time? Man, wouldn't that be great? I've actually been to that house on Straight Street in Damascus. I'll be back in Damascus later this fall, as a matter of fact. I'm on a task force right now with International Mission Board. We're trying to figure out how do we respond to the crisis in Syria? How do we get the gospel into Syria? Do you understand that during a time of crisis, people are more open to hearing the gospel than any other time in their lives? Times have changed. If they've just had a baby, they're more open to hearing the gospel during that time and to beginning to be involved in church. If there's just been a death of a significant family member, they're more likely to hear the gospel and to be involved in church during that particular time. Those changed times in our life, but especially times of crisis, make people open to hearing the gospel. Apostle Paul had certainly, or Saul at that time, had certainly been through a time of crisis. And now God is sending one of his servants to him. Did you notice that the command is always the same? It is go. I can only think of one place in the scripture where it says stay. Be still and know I'm God. Why do you need to be still and know that I'm God? So that I can tell you where to go. That's the reality of it. That's the reality of it. You want to know how Calvary has sent 119 missionary families through the years, how we give $3 million a year? Because people have listened for the voice of God and obeyed the command to go. But you need to understand, that's been happening in our church since 1968. This is not a new experience. I met with your missions committee here a while back, and you're just beginning that process. And I want to tell you, there's nothing that is more exciting, nor will energize a church more than what that will do. One of the things your committee is considering right now is to become part of the Sin City North America effort. 
in particular in Calgary, Canada. Calgary, Canada is a city of 1.3 million people. Last year, it grew, had a net growth of 3.5%. That means if you take away all the people who moved away and all the people who died, and you add in all the people who were born and all the people who moved there from someplace else, the place grew by 3.5%. Stop and think about that. That's a lot of people. I have stood literally in places there where they are building communities that in two years will have 60,000 people living in them. The average income is $90,000 a year per person. That's per husband, per wife, per child, not just per worker. It's an incredibly affluent place But it's a place that could be signified just like the drama of your kids up here this morning where people have tremendous needs, but everybody is so busy they walk by without seeing it. And yet in a city of 1.3 million people, there is only 23 Baptist churches. There are fewer than 60 evangelical churches in that city. To the best that we can calculate, about one and a half percent of the city is evangelical Christian. That means that they attend a church that preaches that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. And that in order to be saved, one must repent and ask for forgiveness of their sin. One and a half percent of 1.3 million people with the population growing the way that I said that it was. Is that a challenge worthy of Pitts Baptist Church taking on? Scott, I think it is, brother. Your youth are getting ready to go to New York City. That's another one of the 32 sin cities. You need to be praying for them, a city of 12 million people. Here again, probably less than 2% of that city is actually evangelical Christian. But yet God is doing some incredible things in the city. By the way, that happens to be one of North Carolina Baptist official partnerships, as is Toronto and Boston. But officially, we're also partnered with all of the Sin Cities in that we encourage all of our Baptist churches in North Carolina to be involved. And yet, only 160 churches have made a commitment to do that. But God says, go. He says, we won't get the job done sitting at home watching Vanna White turn letters on the big board. He says, go, because there is a lost world. I was in Kuala Lumpur two weeks ago today, visiting with my good friend Rodney Duncan. Rodney took me to a little church, about 55 college students meeting in a room over a storefront from six different universities. In Kuala Lumpur, there are 650,000 College students. City of six and a half million people, and that's their best estimate. Cranes everywhere you turn. Has 170 shopping malls. And I'm talking about most of them are bigger than this one out here on Bruton Smith Parkway. I'm talking huge shopping malls. 
One of them is the fifth largest in the world, as a matter of fact. There's 23 Baptist churches. There's less than 60 evangelical churches in a city of six and a half million. Don Wilton, who's the pastor of First Baptist Church Spartanburg, just down the road, his son and daughter-in-law and their three children live there. We had dinner with them. And I was just talking to him. He said, Steve, he said, I need bodies. I need people who will come in here and just help us share Jesus. I need people who come in and just prayer walk the city. He's one of only four couples in a city of six and a half million trying to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I looked at him. I said, brother, I'll find some churches to partner with you. Because North Carolina Baptists have a partnership with Southeast Asia. And Malaysia is part of Southeast Asia. In June, I'll be back there. I'll be in Indonesia for a meeting, then up in Chiang Mai, Thailand for a meeting. Then I'm going to go to Burma. I'm going to go to Cambodia and to Laos and to Vietnam to look at work and the needs that we have there. And the question I have is, the need is great. Will North Carolina Baptist step up to the plate? Will Pitts Baptist Church step up to the plate and meet some of those needs? You see, it only takes one person to make an impact in a world of lostness. And so God calls this one man. And as we're going to see, he goes to do something very significant. But notice that there was conflict within the servant. Listen to verse 13. Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Do you understand that we are all conservative by nature? Most of us don't like change. Yet, do you understand what the opposite of change is? It's death. If we stop changing, we die. We don't like change by nature. But do you understand that change is happening all around you? Scott mentioned this morning about the number of internationals that are moving to this area. One of the projects that my office is doing right now that I'm the most excited about is that we're doing people group mapping across the state of North Carolina. And in particular, we're looking at the eight largest metropolitan areas of North Carolina. The Charlotte metro area is obviously the largest of those. You've got Asheville, you've got Hickory Statesville, then you've got the triad, which is Greensboro, Winston-Salem, High Point. You've got the triangle, which is Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill. You've got Greenville, Wilson, Rocky Mount area. Then you've got the Wilmington area, and you've got the Fayetteville area. And we're doing people group mapping in all of those areas right now. Let's look just at the research triangle, because we've actually finished that one. We're not quite finished with the Charlotte metro area yet, so I don't have all the statistics on it. Research triangle... Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill, 1.3 million people. We estimate currently 350,000 of the 1.3 million move there from another country. Did you hear that? Of 1.3 million people, 350,000 came from another country. Not another city, not another part of the United States, from another country. By the way, some of them came from other parts of the United States, and it's like coming from another country, okay? Okay. <laughs> 
They ain't like us, folks. Some of them are Yankees, I won't tell you. <laughs> and some of them is that weird West Coast group, you know, the land of fruits and nuts. <laughs> but a whole lot of them ain't like us. And I know you're sitting there thinking, yeah, it's all Mexicans. The majority of those folks up there are Asians. And they're very highly skilled, highly educated Asians. One of the largest groups is Gujarati Indians. And they're there doing medical research. We estimate that between now and the year 2025, the research triangle will grow from 1.3 million to 2 million, and that 65% of the new growth will be internationals. Now, my question to North Carolina Baptist is, are you ready? See, I bank with a particular bank, and when I go to the ATM, it offers me the opportunity already to do business in eight different languages. My bank is getting ready. Are North Carolina Baptists ready? My wife walked into a doctor's office the other day in Winston-Salem. She's in medical technology sales. She went in to see one of the doctors. And when she walked up to the receptionist desk, there was a sign on the desk offering help in 20 different languages. A doctor's office is getting ready. Are we ready? Are we simply going to resist change? And say, why are all these people coming here? Are we going to let the Spirit of God do a work in our hearts that says, I am moving the world to you, North Carolina Baptist? Are you willing to step up to the plate and share the gospel in a culturally appropriate way? Are you willing to help us start language churches? Are you willing to welcome the stranger into Pitts Baptist Church? Scott, what if you guys had 15 different language churches meeting in your church sharing facilities? Would that be a bad thing? I mean, God's given y'all beautiful facilities. Can they only be used a couple of times on Sunday? I would hope not. You see, God is sending us an unprecedented opportunity. A week from tomorrow, I have two men from IMB coming to carry to do a people group identification and engagement conference. We've got about 40 people coming. I think it's going to be a key thing for the state of North Carolina. We're going to start doing those all over the state before long. But we're going to begin training churches in how do you engage these people groups that are moving to North Carolina. A few years ago in Winston-Salem, we suddenly saw a group of Asians show up from Burma. Their name are Karen, in particular, they're Red Karen. And the UN was sending them there because the dictator in Burma was literally trying to kill them. And so the way they would do that is they would force them out of the country by planting more and more landmines and just continually forcing them further toward the border of Thailand with these landmine fields. And finally, the UN started taking them in, and then they started putting them in placement around the world, and one of the places was Winston-Salem. To make a long story short, in the last five years, we baptized about 140 Korean. Why did we do that? 
Because when they showed up, they didn't know what a light switch was for. And our people met them at the airport and took them to their apartment and showed them what a light switch was for. They'd never cooked on an electric stove. They'd always cooked over an open fire. We showed them how to cook on an electric stove. They didn't know what a toilet was. They had always gone to the bathroom in latrines or outside. We showed them what a bathroom was for and how to flush a commode and why. Do you see where I'm going with that? We took them to their medical appointments they had to get. We took them to all the social services appointments that they had to go to in order to meet the demands of the UN. We helped them find jobs. Basically, we took enough time to love them. And as a result, many have come into the kingdom. Last August, we ordained the first Karenni pastor in the United States. God is good, folks. And he says, I have confidence in you and I'm sending these people to you so that you can reach them with the love of my son who died for their sins just like he died for your sins. But notice Ananias was conflicted over this. Verse 13, he says, I've heard from many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He says, Lord, I've heard about this guy named Saul, and what I've heard isn't good. Lord, I heard that this was the guy who told him to stone Stephen, and that he stood there and held the cloaks of the guys that stoned him and yelled, pick up a bigger rock and throw it harder next time. We don't like change. It intimidates us. But I'm telling you, God sends change because it is opportunity. And it's opportunity for the gospel. And he expects us to take that opportunity. The next thing, notice if you will, he gives comfort to the servant. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There's that command again, go. Go. Wow. Go. Do you understand that the Christian life is not a life of comfort? Many of the things that God asks us to do are uncomfortable things. But he says, I'll be with you while you're doing them. In this case, he actually told Ananias a little more. He said, this man is chosen by me for something specific. Do you understand that Saul became the apostle Paul and that through him, we have over half of the New Testament? Do you understand that this was the man who did the first three missionary journeys in the history of the world, including going into Western Europe? And that most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us in this room are descendants from Western Europeans and that we probably have the gospel because of the work of Saul who became the Apostle Paul? Can God change the world through one man? I would submit to you that there was a man named Ananias that we're only told God asked to do one thing and God changed the world through that one man. If God called one of your youth to missions, would you rejoice 
Would you support them with prayer and gifts? Let me get a little more personal. If God called your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter, would you rejoice? I sat with seven couples in Penang, Malaysia for two weeks just recently. One of those couples was the McVeighs. They serve on the island of Flores in Indonesia. They're the only, only evangelical witness on the island of Flores in Indonesia. They have three young children. When I say young, they're all under four. When they first got there, their house was not constructed, so they lived in a tent on the beach. No shower, no running water, lived in a tent on the beach. No kitchen to cook in, cooked on a fire. Finally, their house got constructed. All three of the kids were sick. The mother was sick. The mother told me, when I became a believer, my father disowned me. said, no daughter of mine will ever be a Christian and certainly not a missionary. Therefore, you're no longer my daughter. They said, but we're here because God called us here. We're here not because it's easy. We didn't think it'd be easy when we got here. But we're here because God put us here. And they looked at me and they said, Steve, can you send teams to help us in Flores? I'm telling you, I want teams to go to Flores just like I want teams to go to Kuala Lumpur. And the first trips are hard, folks. I mean, you're talking literally halfway around the world. My boss sent me a text this morning and said, how's your jet lag? I'm one of those fortunate people. My body clock gave up on me years ago. I had no jet lag going over, and I've had no jet lag coming back. That's just not my problem. But I got to tell you, for most people, that's a problem. It drives my wife crazy that I can do what I do with no jet lag. It's a long ways there. It takes 45 hours of travel to get to the island of Flores. The last part of the travel is by boat. It's so remote. God called you, would you go to help this couple 10 days to two weeks at a time? We can send you. We can help you get there to work with them. I want to tell you a marvelous story about Flores. I met recently with a young man from Collettsville, North Carolina. You'd find, be hard-pressed to find it on a map. It's between Lenore and Morganton, out in the middle of nowhere. He called me. He said, Steve... God has called our church to adopt a people group on the island of Flores. I said, really? I said, tell me about your church. He said, we have 60 people. I said, really? And you're going to adopt a people group on the island of Flores? He said, yeah, we're going to adopt a people group on the island of Flores. He said, I went to the Southern Baptist Convention in Phoenix. They said, you need to do UUPG work. God said, you need to do that. I said, okay, we'll as a church do that. He said, it took me two years to lead the church to adopt this people group. He said, we voted on it 
He said, we were a church of 60 people. He said the vote was 59 to 1. He said the one negative vote was the chairman of the deacons. I thought to myself, that figures, you know. <laughs> he said, so I got together with him after the service. I said, tell me what you're thinking, brother. He said, well, obviously, pastor, the church wants to do this, so I'll go along with it. He said, well, what do you think I'll do? He said, put a sign-up sheet out next Sunday and see who responds. So he said, I prayed about it, and I put out three sign-up sheets. One was asking who would pray. He said, all 60, including the chairman of the deacons, signed up to pray. He said the second one was who would give over and above the tithe so that others could go. He said 16 signed up to give over and above the tithe. He said we've collected over $9,000 in six months. He said the third one was who's willing to go. He said 12 signed up that they were willing to go. That's 20% of the church. He said we're going in April. He said what do I do when I get there? (laughs) So I've been training him and his team and what they do when they get there. I mean, is that a marvelous story or what? God is pulling that church out of its comfort zone. Two things, real quickly. Notice the compliance of the servant. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There comes a point when we have to make a decision. Do we go or do we stay? Do we give or do we hold on to it? Do we pray or do we spend our time another way? Do we support or do we gripe? There's always a decision to be made, folks. There is nothing about missions that is static. Somebody asked me, why do you keep going to the crazy places you go to? Because God keeps sending me. It's the only explanation I have for you. Every time I say I'm going to Egypt, my wife says, really? I cannot go to Egypt without getting deathly ill. I've been over 20 times, but I can't do it. I don't know why. I just can't. It's the one country in the world where I get sick. And every time God says go to Egypt, my wife is like, really? Again? Because she knows what it's going to be like for six weeks after I get back. Missions demands action. And sometimes the action is praying and sometimes it is giving and sometimes it is simply being a means of support to those who are going and sometimes it is going and sometimes it is surrendering your life and saying, here I am, Lord, send me. And finally, after that, You notice there's compensation for the servant. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized and taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Wow. Scott, do you know of anything that thrills the heart of a pastor more than seeing somebody baptized? By the way, Did I mention that Ananias was not a pastor? But did you notice who did the baptizing? Do you know that it's not necessarily biblical that only pastors baptize people? I just want you to know that. That's a church planting principle that we teach. You lead somebody to Jesus, you baptize them. That's standard practice on the field now. I just want you to know. We could talk a lot about the theological implications of that. 
Obedience is always rewarded. Obedience is always rewarded. 2003, Southern Baptists packed eight and a half million pounds of food and sent it to Iraq. In boxes that weighed 80 pounds apiece, and I took in 650 volunteers over a period of months to distribute that eight and a half million pounds of food. In addition to that, we distributed 43 water purification units that were capable of purifying 10,000 gallons of water a day. Those were put together basically by mega churches across the convention. We were doing a food distribution in a little neighborhood that was in a very bad part of Baghdad. And every day when we would do the food distribution, we were also rehabbing a school. And every day the crowds would get a little noisier and a little more rowdy. But you know, if my child was hungry, I would probably do most anything I could do to get food too. And one of those boxes of food would feed a family for a month. And finally, on the last day, they said, we're going to move you from the school down to this little Hasidim, a little community mosque, because we think the school's getting too rowdy. And as soon as we drove to where that mosque was, I thought, oh, Lord, we're in a bad place. Little narrow dirt street, one way in, one way out. We had a, a guy who was a community leader wore blue jeans and a t-shirt and he had a big belt buckle on his belt, big Texas tight belt buckle, said boss on it and he carried an AK-47 and I thought, if you carry the AK-47, you can be boss. And we were distributing food and I never forget, I had been spending time with the imam there just drinking tea and talking with him and this one lady comes up to the windows of the mosque and thrusts her little baby out to me, probably no more than six months old and in Arabic she's saying, my baby is sick. Is there food for my baby? People are pushing, shoving. We ran out of food. The guy had been guarding the courtyard. We'd just been letting people in one or two at a time to get the food. And he turned his back, and all of a sudden, the courtyard is full of people. I thought, my word. What's going to happen? One of the guys that was with me was a guy named Doug. Doug was afraid of his shadow and afraid to fly. But he had come to me and he said, God wants me to go to Baghdad with you. I said, Doug, are you sure? He said, yeah. And so Doug went to Baghdad with me. And I'm sitting there and I'm praying, Lord, you're going to have to help us out of this one because I really don't know what to do. Now, my voice might start a riot, but it wouldn't calm one. If you ever hear me sing, you'll understand that. But Doug has a gorgeous voice and I didn't know it. And all of a sudden, I heard him singing, Father, I adore you. Lay my life before you. Oh, how I love you. There was just five of us men, and suddenly we started singing with them. And the whole place got deathly quiet 
a little pathway parted, and we walked between it and got into the truck and drove out of the community. And I thought, how like God, when we lay our life before us, just as Ananias did, he always brings blessing. Would you bow your heads and stand, please? Father God, as we come to a time of commitment, there's some here today who have heard your voice in a very unique way. And some of them, Father, have simply heard you say, it's time for you to slow down. It's time for you to get a new perspective on your relationship with me. You need to be more like Ananias, that when I speak, you listen and you know that it's me. There are others here, Father, that you're calling to a specific involvement in missions, whether it's Calgary or whether it's Malaysia or whether it's Indonesia or some other part of the world. There are some, Father, that need to say, Lord, I'm sorry for the way I look at other people and we need to allow you to break our hearts for the people that you're moving right here in our own community. To see them through the eyes of Jesus, not through the eyes of prejudice. To see them as the people that you have moved here who need you and that we are the opportunity that they will have to hear of you. Father, maybe there's someone here and you're saying, go and spend your life serving me. And today they need to hear that call and respond to you. Other commitments, Father, I leave between you and them. But Lord, as we sing this morning, I pray for you to move our hearts to respond because missions always requires response. We ask it in your name. Amen. Your pastor's here at the front. As we sing, this is your opportunity to respond to what God is saying to you. Some of you may need to simply come and kneel and pray. Others may need to take Scott by the hand and say, here's what God's saying to me. As he calls, listen and respond.